Good morning, Redeemer Church. When we were singing those lines, all glory, all honor, all praise to you, I was was visualizing God saving his people out of Egypt. I, I was visualizing the fact that they cried out to him. They said, we're in these shackles and chains. We're in bondage to Pharaoh. Would you come and help us? And I visualized God coming to help and sending those plagues and sending Moses to deliver them out. And as they're being delivered out by God, he parts the sea and they walk on dry ground in the middle of the sea. And then he crashes those waters onto the Egyptian army, the Egyptian soldiers. And then on the other side, they have no food to eat and God provides for them. Every single day, this manna from heaven. And then they have no word to live by, and he provides the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai where there is smoke and glory and and, uh, jewels and this amazing presence of an almighty God. And then he delivers them in miraculous ways over and over. As I'm visualizing this and singing all praise, all honor, all glory, all, all everything to you, I'm just thinking... This is my God too. I have the same God they had. That's how powerful He is. That's how how awesome He is. That's how glorious He is. And so it made me sing louder and and louder. And then I realized Candace was beside me. And I said, I need to go quieter to let the good voices sing. If you would have the privilege to have been friends with the Apostle Paul, he would have likely asked you at some point, how's your walk? How you walking? And and by that, he would have meant, how's your lifestyle? How are you living? How, How is your life week to week and day to day and hour to hour and minute to minute? What is your walk like, he would ask. What is your life like? And at some point, he would probably say, Something like, he said to the Ephesians, walk carefully then. Walk carefully. He would have to say, watch your walk. Redeem the time. Know the Lord. He would say that to you if you were friends with him because he would be just as concerned about your life and your walk as he was about his life and his walk. And I believe that the spirit of our series right now on walk is, is that, is that we want to be concerned about our own lifestyles, how we're living day to day, week to week, month to month. What is the rhythm and the pattern of our lives? Because the rhythm and the pattern of our lives determines the quality of our lives. And so we have addressed how to walk skillfully and to walk as worshipers and to walk as workers, to walk as husbands and wives, to walk as family members. And today we're going to address how to walk as church members. Now I want to say this, that the, the local church is designed for every Christian. And every Christian is designed for the local church. I want to be clear on that. The local church is designed for every Christian, and every Christian is designed for the local church. Alan Stibbs, author of God's Church, says, Any idea of enjoying salvation or being a Christian in isolation is foreign to the New Testament. The necessity of membership in the local church is never questioned. It's taken for granted. Had we asked the believers of the apostolic period whether it was essential to join a church, they would not have known what we are talking about. Every believer became a member of a church. The overwhelming majority of you already believe that. So I'm not going to try to give a defense on church membership today. I could give you a defense on church membership But most of you already believe in it. Most of you are already members. And so what I want to do is I want to help you to walk as church members, to live out your lives as church members in a skillful way. That's my job. All right, so I want you to turn to the book of Acts. To turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is primarily a descriptive book, not a prescriptive one. And for you uh, kids, if you think about the difference between being descriptive and prescriptive, If I describe an action to you, what am I doing? I'm telling you about an action that occurred. 
But if I prescribe an action to you, I'm telling you to follow an action that I'm giving you to do. Okay, so Acts is descriptive, not so much prescriptive. Like, Luke is writing it. And he's not, he's not so much telling the 21st century church, this is how you should do what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. No. He's saying, look at what the first century church did. Take notice of the power of the Holy Spirit in the church and live accordingly. Live accordingly. Now just because it's descriptive doesn't mean it's not instructive. Well, it's 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? It says, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, so the book of Acts, while describing, uh, is also giving great instructions. So this is, what, this is what Luke is doing in the book of Acts. He is putting a huge spotlight on the church. And he is saying, look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's what he's doing. Look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And this is what it can look like in your church. Okay. So let's get a running start in Acts. Let's get a running start and look, uh, uh, look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, Jesus has resurrected from, from the dead, and so the leaders of the church are commissioned in verse 8. Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the leaders of the church are being commissioned. The head of the church is exalted. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So the leaders are commissioned, the head of the church is exalted, so now what? The power of, church, the, power of the church arrives. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so the leaders of the church are commissioned. The head of the church is exalted. Now the power of the church is arrived. The power is the Holy Spirit. So what happens? The preachers of the church speak. So, so Peter and the rest of the apostles go out and thousands and thousands of Jews are celebrating the, the festival of Pentecost. And so they go out and they begin to speak. They begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 14 of chapter 2. No, look at verse 22 of chapter 2. Peter says, he's preaching. He's saying, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so he continues to preach the gospel. He quotes Psalm 110. He quotes various passages in the Old Testament and even Joel. And he's using the Old Testament to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these people's hearts are cut to the core. So much so that we see that the members of the church join. Look at verse 37 and following. When they heard this, they were, what were they? Cut to the heart. The word of God cut their hearts. And they said to Peter, Peter didn't even have to start giving applications to the sermon. All right? He's declaring the word of God. He's showing how the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And before he can say, okay, let's get to the head, heart, and hands. No, no. What do they say? They say, they say brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you 
and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So as we get a running start into our text today, we see the leaders of the church are commissioned, the head of the church is exalted, the power of the church has arrived, the preachers of the church have spoken, and the members of the church have joined via their baptism. Now let's read verses 42 through 47. And they, that is, all those who are now part of the church, the 3,000 plus the apostles plus the 120 who had already believed, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Keep your eyes on the text. Look at verse 43. Every soul. Verse 44, all who believed. Verse 44, all things in common. Verse 45, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. There is a commonality. There is a totality of what's happening in this church. And what we want to ask, we want to ask the question is, how did the great commissioned, spirit-filled church walk? How did the great commissioned, spirit-filled church walk? We're going to answer that. We're going to answer it. First of all, they walked with a common resolve. They walked with a common resolve. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. We see first the force of their resolve. Look, they devoted themselves. They had a collective resolution to persevere and persist. They had a unity of mind, a unity of heart, and a unity of action. That's what they had. They were bound together for one specific course of action. They had resolve. Now, we have previously defined resolve as a spirit-led determination to live a disciplined gospel life for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's how we've defined it. And I want to tell you, one or two or three or four of them didn't just have this. Luke is telling us that everybody in the church had this resolve. They had a spirit-led determination to live a gospel life for the glory of God and joy of all people. All people. They had it. You know, there's a difference between involvement and commitment. There's a difference between participation and resolve. Involvement is participating in an activity a group, a relationship. Sometimes you may participate a lot. Sometimes you may participate a little. Sometimes you may care a whole lot, and sometimes you may not care very much at all. But it's okay, because you're just participating in it. You're just involved in it. And so you kind of can come in and out and in and out, depending on how your life is going and what's going on with you. That's what it means to be involved. But, but, but when you're resolved, when, when you're committed, you have a spirit-led determination to live a life that is committed to this thing. Commitment, resolve, is a binding of yourself to a particular course of action. 
That's what it is. It is a binding of yourself to a particular course of action. And Luke is telling us that these believers in the early church had bound themselves to a particular course of action. I want to ask a question right now. Did, did anybody this morning have bacon and eggs? All oh, right. I just did. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So, Chris, did you enjoy your eggs? Did you enjoy the bacon? Yeah, it's a great combination, all right? Love the combo. But what we would have to say is that the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed, right? Isn't that right? All right, all right. There's a little difference between the two, right? The chicken was involved, the pig was committed, all right? When it comes to involvement and commitment, there is a level of binding yourself to a particular course of action that no matter what happens, I'm in this thing for the long haul, right? And the pig was in it for the long haul. Well, in the same way, in the same way, we've got to be in it for the long haul. I've, I'm 41 years old now, and I'm now old enough to have seen a lot of what I call flash-in-the-pan Christians. I've just seen so many people maybe make a decision for Christ, get involved in the church, they get real excited and, and they're making bold declarations and bold pledges and they're wanting to do this and they're wanting to do that and they, get, they just get hunkered down and man, you're like, man, these people are on fire and then all of a sudden you look up and they're not around as much and, and you're like, well, what's going on? You call them and they're not quite as accessible as they used to be and they're not quite as fired up as they used to be and some time goes by and all of a sudden... Three years later, five years later, they're, they're nowhere to be heard from. And there's a conversation at the coffee uh, pod, and you know, one morning you're like, hey, what, whatever happened to old so-and-so? And you're just like, I, I don't know. He just, you know, his, his excitement waned, his, his, his desire to serve seemed to kind of wane. I saw him in the grocery store about a year ago and asked him about church, and he just said, you know, he just with all the stuff on him, you know, with his job and his family and all, he, he just didn't really have time to give the church anymore. If I've seen one of those kind of people, I have seen a hundred. And this is the thing. They were involved, but they weren't committed. They, they were participating, but they weren't resolved. Resolve is a spirit-led determination where you bind yourself to a course of action and the church Right here, they were absolutely resolved to the course of action to glorify God. Let's see what they were resolved to do. Let's look at the fabric of their resolve. What's the content of their resolve? They're resolved to learn the Word of God. It says the apostles' teaching. They were committed to teaching, which means they were committed to learning. They were a learning, studying church. They realized that the foundational source for their spiritual growth was found in God's truth through the teaching of the apostles. And what I find probably most interesting about this, that they're, they're committed to the apostles' teaching, is that they had just experienced the most supernatural work of God somebody could possibly imagine. I mean, the day of Pentecost brought the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire. All of these Galilean fishermen are speaking in other tongues and other languages, and an amazing miracle happens. But what they devote themselves to is not all of the various gifts and signs, but what they devote themselves to is what? The teaching. The teaching of the Word. And so they rallied around the apostles' teaching. They're learners. They knew that worship starts with the knowledge of Christ. And so I do want to state a couple of things before we move forward. Is that Jesus had said in Matthew 29, after he was resurrected, he said, yes, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples and I want you to baptize those disciples. And then I want you to teach them everything that I commanded you. So when we ask the question, what is it that the apostles were teaching? They were teaching what Jesus had commanded. They were teaching what Jesus had taught. They were likely teaching in the style that Jesus taught. They probably told stories and parables and repeated the very same things that Jesus himself repeated. And they gave instructions just as Jesus had given because they were following Jesus' orders. And I will tell you that if you 
are in a church, the one thing that you need to look for is do this, does this church or does this preacher follow the pattern of Jesus? Does he follow the pattern of Jesus? Does he exalt Jesus? Does he declare Jesus? Does he declare the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, the mediation of Jesus, the return of Jesus? Does, does he do that? Does he call for repentance and faith like Jesus did? Because that's exactly what the apostles were doing as they were teaching this early church. They taught the word of God, which was namely the message of Christ. What else were they resolved to do? They resolved to partner with the people of God. They wanted to learn the word of God, but they resolved to partner with the people of God. The fellowship. Notice it has an article in front of it. Not just fellowship, but the fellowship. That is partnership, close relationship, sharing. We've defined it here as partnering with one another in gospel love. Linking arms, linking hands with one another, loving one another with the gospel, rooted in the gospel. And I, I want you to know that at the root of partnership is enthusiasm. Now, that's very important because I think we think of fellowship as just kind of this uh, almost passive spontaneous thing that just occurs when the people of God get together. Let me tell you something. There are millions of churches gathering today and thousands of them have no fellowship. Fellowship is the enthusiasm that believers demonstrate toward God and toward each other as they take their eyes off of themselves and put it squarely on Jesus Christ and one another's needs. That's what fellowship is. It's enthusiasm. It's enthusiasm when, when they help one another and, and love one another and pray for one another and serve one another and encourage one another and care for one another. It's, it's this inner enthusiasm that says, I want to exalt Christ by loving others and caring for their needs. And they were resolved to do that. Listen, J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite writers in the 1800s, said, the true Christian regards all Christ's friends as his friends, members of the same body, children of the same family, soldiers of the same army, travelers to the same home. When he meets them, he feels as if he had long known them. He is more at home with them in a few minutes than he is with many worldly people after an acquaintance of years. And what is the secret of all this? It is simply affection to the same Savior and love to the same Lord. It's an enthusiasm. What else were they resolved to, church? They were resolved to remember the Son of God. They were resolved to remember the Son of God. It says that they committed themselves to the breaking of bread. Well, what was the breaking of get bread? Well, as I studied this week, I realized that we, you just can't hone it down into one thing. Because there, there are some who believe that it was the, the celebrating of communion, and then some believe that it was just eating meals together. And this is what I believe, because based on 1 Corinthians and some, some of the, the pattern that we get, get from even Jesus himself when he broke bread with them and celebrated the, uh, the Passover and the, the, the initiated the Lord's Supper, this is what I think. I think that when they broke bread together, they were eating together, they were eating meals together, and they were celebrating communion together. They were eating together, and they were celebrating communion together. So they cooked together, they prepared together, they ate together, they laughed together, they cleaned up together, they, they were around one another as they ate meals together. And so what, this is what I want to I ask. What, what do you do when you, when you share a meal together? You, you talk, you listen, you laugh, you smile, you think. There's a lot that goes on when you eat a meal with somebody. And this is what the church did. As they said, we're going to eat together so that we can get to know one another. We can listen to each other. We can talk to each other. We can learn from one another. We can laugh together. We can have our hearts united to one another as we're looking at one another eye to eye, enjoying relaxed time together around the table. That's what they did. And then not only that, they celebrated communion together. They celebrated the cross. Like they remembered the cross. Jesus had instituted the supper. And he says, do this as often as you eat it. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. 
And so they're committed to the apostles' teaching, and the apostles' teaching are saying, listen, this is one thing that we must do. We've got to celebrate communion together, the Lord's Supper together. And so it's taking this bread, and it's taking this cup so that we can remember the Lord Jesus till he returns. And so then they did that together as a church. We did it last week. I want want you to do something for me right now. Would you please just uh, bow your head and close your eyes? Because as they broke bread together, they remembered the cross. These are the kinds of things they remembered. At the cross, Christ was rejected so we could be received. Christ was forsaken so we could be forgiven. Christ was wounded so we could be healed. Christ was punished so we could be purchased. Christ was humiliated so we could be elevated. Christ was broken down so we could be built up. Christ was crushed so we could be recreated. Christ was denigrated so we could be regenerated. Christ was tortured so we could be protected. Christ was isolated so we could be integrated. Christ was made sin so we could be made righteous. Christ was declared guilty so we could be declared innocent. Christ was all sorrow so we could be all joy. Christ hung His head so we could lift ours up. Christ suffered so we could sing. Christ died so we could live. You can open your eyes now. Can you see how breaking bread together can join people's hearts and lives together? Our hearts are united to Christ because we remember Him, because we love Him, and our common affection for Him creates a common affection for one another. The church broke bread together and remembered those realities as they remembered Him. And then they were resolved to depend on the power of God. They were resolved to depend on the power of God. It says they they were committed to the prayers. Now these were set prayers. They were spontaneous prayers. They were public prayers. They were private prayers. They were corporate prayers. They were personal prayers. The whole range of praying is, is included here. The early church understood the importance of prayer. They understood that prayer is foundational to the Christian life, not merely supplemental. I mean, what, what is prayer? This is what prayer is, church. Prayer is recognizing that God is God and we're not. Prayer is recognizing that He's powerful and we're not powerful. That He's wise and we're unwise. That He is sufficient and we are needy. It's saying to God everything about Him and everything about us. It's like, God, we need you. We're desperate for you. If we don't have you, then we are doomed. That's what prayer is. And so when we pray, we're exercising our dependence on His power. And when we don't pray, we're exercising our dependence on ourselves. And so the the church walked with a common resolve. And obviously this is the most important and significant part of the passage. What were they resolved to do? They were resolved to learn the Word of God. They were resolved to partner with the people of God. They were resolved to remember the Son of God. They were resolved to depend on the power of God. And to get an amen? All right. What was the second way that they walked? They walked with a common reverence. They walked with a common reverence. It says, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All. A-W-E. It's the Greek phobos, fear, reverence. What, what happened is the Lord's powerful work in His church produced, now get this, a careful, respectful, nervous recognition of what was happening in Jerusalem. A careful, respectful, nervous recognition of what was happening in Jerusalem. Like, this is what's going on. All right, Jerusalem is a Jewish city. All right, Jerusalem has the Jewish temple. All of life is centered around the temple. All of family life, 
All of worship life is centered around the table. And, and the Sanhedrin, the 70 leaders, are the rock stars of Jerusalem. And everybody just, just is in awe of the Sanhedrin. And they're awe of the Pharisees and in awe of the scribes. And th- th- this, this, whole, this whole system is, is religious, but it's also tight. It's stiff. It's formal. It's, 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 it's even self-righteous, even though they wouldn't recognize that. And everything about Jerusalem life centered around the formality of religious life at the temple. And that's what everybody kind of centered their whole beings around. And then all of a sudden, 3,000 people are saved at Pentecost. They join this church. They're breaking bread. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. People are being saved day by day. Genuine love is being expressed. Folks are opening up the doors to their homes. Things are getting more simple. Things are getting more genuine. Things are getting more personal. And all of a sudden... Everybody else in Jerusalem is like, what's going on? This is like, this is really odd. Like it's, it's kind of like drawing me in like a magnet, but I don't understand it and I'm not sure I even like it, but something about it I want to know more of. That's what's going on. Now, when Jamie and I got married, we, we started visiting churches, lots of churches anywhere from Alexander City to Montgomery to Anniston and Oxford to Jacksonville and seemingly everywhere in between when we were young as we were moving from town to town. And I remember we, one of the first churches that we visited was a country church. And we got to the country church and they sang a few songs and preached a, a little sermon and said amen. And by 12.05, the church parking lot was a ghost town. And we were not in awe. We then went to a mega church. And it seemed like what was really important was social status. Was the apparel in which you wore. And the loudness of the music. And I remember even in that church, we we finally got invited by a couple to come to their house for some fellowship. And an hour into the fellowship the Amway program rolls out and they want us to join their club and Jamie and I did not feel loved, we felt used and we walked out and we were not in awe. And then we go to a traditional church where they sing good songs and they pray good prayers and they have a good sermon. But we walk inside the church and nobody talks to us. And we walk outside the church and nobody talks to us. And we get in our car and we say those are good songs and that was good preaching and that was a good deal. But we're not in awe. We go to a contemporary church. There's a lot of excitement and people are nice. But it seems like they're more concerned with singing repetitive songs over and over and being enamored with the gifts themselves rather than the giver of gifts. And we walk out and we're not in awe. But then in God's providence, we walk into a small church in Golden Springs in 2001. And the Word of God is opened and it is preached with great accuracy and great power. And the songs are songs that we would have never chosen, didn't even hear of, but the singers were singing with great fervor and zeal and genuineness. And then we were tackled by scores of people after the service with genuine love. And we walked out and we were in awe. We were fascinated. We, 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 we had a, a reverence for it. We were also skeptical of it, thinking that it might even be a cult because it's nothing like we've ever seen before. But we kept going back. And why did we come back? Because we were in awe. Listen, if you want to have an impact on the world, then you must be different. And that difference is marked by a commitment and absolute devotion to the Word of God, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship and to the prayers, and that will set you apart, and God will call His own to Himself in that manner. A common reverence is what they had. All came upon every soul. A common regard. A common regard. Luke tells us that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, they had regard for each other's presence. Like, they just wanted to be with each other. Like, it says, all who believed were together. I mean, they prioritized being with one another. We need to make that observation. They prioritized 
being with one another. Not only that, they had a regard for each other's lives. It says they had all things in common. And their love for one another and compassion toward one another was expressed in sharing their things with one another. And their, their, their spirit was basically this. Your life is as valuable as my life. Your family is as valuable as my family. So if your life has a need, I want to meet it if I can. If your family has a need, I want to meet it if we can. Because you are as valuable as we are. That's, that's what they, they had all things in common. And then they had regard for each other's needs. Look, they were selling their possessions. They were selling their belongings and distributing to all as any had need. Don't you just look at the verbs there? Man, this wasn't a one-time act. It, this was an ongoing distribution. As people in the church had need, the other believers in the church provided their needs. Man, this is a, this is a community of people who cares. This is a community of people who, who just wants to meet needs. Now, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and it's really just volume two of volume one, which is the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story about a man. And he says, there was this man whose land yielded a huge harvest. And basically this man is like, what am I going to do with all of my harvest, with all of the fruits, with all of the vegetables, with all of the stuff? They won't fit in my barns. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll tear down my barn and I'll build bigger barns so that I can put all of my stuff, all of my fruits, all of my vegetables, all of my material, all of my resources in this big, huge barn. And then once I've done that, I've stored it up for myself, and then I'll just relax, and I'll eat, and I'll drink, and I'll be merry. And then Jesus says, but the Lord comes in and says, you fool, you fool. Do you not understand that your soul is required of you this very day? Now what are you going to do with all of that stuff? Now what are you going to do? And Jesus is, is teaching the principle that what does your life consist of? Your life does not consist of all the things that you can accumulate. The, the, the thing that your life consists of is to be able to love God and meet people's needs as He blesses you. Now the reason I bring that up is because the same guy who wrote Luke 12 wrote Acts 2, and he's demonstrating that the people in the early church did not have the mentality of the man in Luke 12. They had the mentality of Jesus Christ who says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, and everybody else in the church's life is every bit as valuable as mine, and I want to give, I want to love, I want to serve, I want to distribute according to the needs that are there. They had no regard for their own things. I just want to remind you of the principle that we're, we're not owners of anything. We are stewards of everything. We have the privilege and responsibility to share with each other what God has entrusted to us. They had a common regard. They also had a common rhythm. Luke says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This rhythm... Luke wants us to see by saying day by day, day by day. He says it in uh, two verses later as well, day by day. And what do they have? Look down at the text. What do they have? They have the rhythm of corporate worship. They attended the temple together. I mean, they lived in Jerusalem, so they worshiped in the Jerusalem temple. They didn't lose their Jewishness per se, so they attended the temple together in corporate worship. They had the rhythm of personal hospitality. They broke bread in their homes. Like they hosted one another in their houses and ate meals together and celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They had the rhythm of grace-filled relationships. Please look down at that verse. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. And they didn't just go through religious motions. No, their hearts were involved. Their hearts were invested and they had joy in Jesus, and that joy produced a gladness and a generosity toward the people of God. Man, I, I will tell you, I, I believe that that's where the church goes wrong. The church goes wrong is because in their mind, they know what's right. And in their mind, they know what's good. 
But, but over time, their heart loses the investment, their heart loses the enthusiasm, and so years down the road and maybe decades, they think to themselves, well, I know we ought to do this. I know we ought to go there. I know we should do this. You see, when the desire to do something for others, the desire to be in fellowship with others is replaced by an obligation to do things with others and an obligation to do things for others, that's when your heart is getting cold and calloused and your love for Jesus is waning and your love for others is waning and now you're just being fueled by an obligation and it becomes more about the law than it does about the gospel. And when it becomes more about the law than it does the gospel, church is no longer exciting. Church is no longer enthusiastic. Church is no longer the place that you want to be. No, you want to be out there somewhere doing something with somebody else because the people of God are no longer primary in your heart. And so that's why it was important for them. They had a rhythm of their life because, listen, in the rhythm of your life, if day by day you're making contact with the people in the church, and if you're texting them, if you're calling them, if you're hosting them, if you're joining with them, if you're studying the Bible with them, it is really hard for those kinds of people and those kinds of relationships to become far from you in your heart. But man, if you're just here and there and you, know, you come some and you don't come some and you're not connected and you don't have a relationship and you're not being discipled and you're not discipling others, man, then it is really easy to get disconnected from the church of Jesus Christ. And so they had a common rhythm. They had a common rhythm. Oh, oh, but they also had the rhythm, look there at the very end, the rhythm of winsome adoration. What was going on? They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Like their joy of fellowship fueled their praise of God. That's what happened. The people of Jerusalem took notice. They had excitement. They noticed the generosity. They noticed the humility. They noticed the, the, the selfless, selflessness. And they were like, we've got to be um, more informed about what's going on here. And so they shared finally a common result. Look at the very last verse. It says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And because they had a common resolve, they had a common reverence, they had a common regard, a common rhythm, they had a common result. And that res result was that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look down at the text. Keep your eyes right now on the text because let's, let's observe a few things. Let's observe a few things. First observation let's make from that last verse, is that they, quote-unquote, they didn't add to their number. Who did? The Lord added to their number. Look, it is not the church's job to add members to the church. It's the Lord's job. All right? Second observation. Their number wasn't an insignificant matter. They actually had a number of church members, and the Lord added to that number. I guess what I'm saying is, I made the observation that it's not about numbers, but it's not, not about numbers either. Because every number represents what? A person. Every number represents a person. And every person represents somebody created by God in the image of God to bring glory to God. Listen, I share my testimony with a group last Sunday afternoon. I shared about when I was in high school as a junior, sitting in my, my locker room with 40 other teammates and a guy from FCA coming in and preaching the gospel. And when he preached the gospel, the Lord really just used that message to draw me to himself. And I think there was one other young man who felt that same calling in his life. And, I, and, and I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you, I'm glad that two young men, two, felt the calling of the Lord on their life that day because it changed my life forever. Like, I guess what I'm saying is there were two. I was one of them. That number's important to me. Right? And so I guess I'm just saying their number wasn't an insignificant matter. They actually had a number of church members and the Lord added to it. Keep your eyes on the text. Let's look at a couple more things. They didn't host a special event to add to their number. They had a daily walk that did that. Like, they capitalized on special events. Man, they were out there at Pentecost and preached to all those thousands, and 3,000 got saved. But they counted. Like, they capitalized on special events, but they counted on their daily walk. And then the other observation is, 
They didn't have a mixture of real Christians and fake Christians as church members. They had a regenerate church membership. It says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being, what? Saved. These were like saved people. Saved people were in the church. And as the saved people were in the church, they were declaring the glorious gospel because they were living in the way that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. Man, they were intimate with one another, but they were open to new members. They were loving toward one another, but they were looking for new members. They were happy with each other, but they were recruiting new members. This was the result that they had. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And so they had a common resolve, a common reverence, a common regard, a common rhythm, and a common result. All right, so now let's ask our three questions. Today will be a lot swifter than the previous weeks. But before, before we ask the first question, reading Acts 2, 42 to 47, I hope that you picked up on something. I hope that you picked up on the first church, the early church. They had four pillars too. They worshiped. They fellowshiped. They were committed to discipleship, and they were absolutely committed to mission. Like, I could have preached that sermon, worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. That's, listen, read Genesis to Revelation, read the Gospels, read the book of Acts. That's what you're going to see. That's what the church is about. The church is about worshiping, fellowshipping, discipling, and being on mission for the glory of God and the joy of all people six times in that passage. Okay. So let's ask the question, what is a church member? What is a church member? A church member is a Christian who inherently belongs to the universal church and voluntarily commits to the pillars of worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission of a local church for the purposes of bringing glory to God's name, joy to God's people, and salvation to the lost. I know that's long. I do. Um, But I want to say a few things about it. First of all, a church member, a real church member is a Christian. And by that I mean somebody who has heard the gospel message, has heard like the words of Jesus that says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. And the Holy Spirit does a regenerating work where, where that person in wanting to follow Jesus, is regenerated. The heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put in. A spirit of rebellion is taken out and the Spirit of Christ is put in. He's a Christian. He's been made new. He's new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Any rightful, justifiable church member is a Christian. Somebody who's a new creation. Alright, so a church member is a Christian who inherently belongs to the universal church. And by that I mean, if you've been made new, if you're a new creation, then you are, you are a member of the church universal. That is, God's invisible church that every single believer is a part of. Now, you don't sign up for that. You signed up for it when you said, I'm going to follow Jesus. All right? And so it doesn't matter whether I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, or whether I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, or whether I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa, I'm a member of a people around there if there are people in those areas who love Jesus. I'm a member of the church, the church at large, the church universal. But that's inherent. A church member is somebody who voluntarily commits to a local church for the glory of God's name, the joy of God's people, and the salvation of the lost. And this is, this is what's critical, church. This is what's critical for you to understand. You can't obey God. You can't glorify God's name and bring joy to God's people and bring salvation to the lost nearly as well on your own than you can in the church of Jesus Christ. You can't. It's not God's design. Not only that, There is no way you can do, you can't mirror or reflect what we just read in Acts 2, 42 to 47 on your own. 
I tell you what, go try to go try to break bread and do the fellowship and commit to doctrine and just go do that on your own. Just try to be just try to be this zealous individual cowboy Christian. I'm telling you, you will not win very many people to Jesus, if any. And if you win any of them to Jesus, what in the world are you winning them to? Okay, so, so a church member is a Christian who inherently belongs to the universal church and voluntarily commits to the pillars of a local church for the purposes of bringing glory to God's name, joy to God's people, and salvation to the lost. All right. Question number two, what are the responsibilities of a church member? You guys are going to be shocked by this answer. The first responsibility of a church member is worship. Worship. Like believe the gospel and bear the fruits of repentance. Celebrate your relationship with God and join with the church in doing so. Focus your mind and your heart and your life on the person and work of Jesus. Pursue the glory of God in all things. Like that's what your responsibilities are, number one. Number two, fellowship. Like partner with one another in gospel love. Go to church gatherings. Employ your spiritual gifts. Build others up. Serve one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Be loved by, be served by, and be cared for by other church members. Third, discipleship. And I'm telling you, some of us are not doing a very good job of this. But this is what I want to say. Be trained and train others in faithful gospel application. And some, some, some of us are just like, okay, where we are. We're, we're just gliding on along. Just We come to some Sunday services, but we are not committed to discipleship. We're not committed to being trained. We're not committed to training others. We're just keeping on trucking. I'm telling you, you're, you're, you're headed for danger. So, so discipleship, engage in Bible reading and prayer and family worship. Receive godly counsel. Give godly counsel. Submit to the leaders of the church, knowing that the only leadership that they can give is from the Word of God. And then fourth, mission. Take the gospel hope to people in need of it. Like Make personal sacrifices so the gospel will be advanced. Pray for gospel advancement in the community, region, and world. Give generously and joyfully to the financial support of the gospel mission of the church. That's everything that if you're a church member that you've signed up for. All right, finally, how do you redeem the time? How do you redeem the time as a church member? You might be thinking, okay, now we're going to get started with the really practical stuff. But I, I want to tell you that um, I'm going I'm to get started with the most important thing. The way to redeem the time as a church member is to value the church in your heart more than any organization, more than the nation you live in, more than any hobby that you have, more than anything else. Value it in your heart. The Proverbs writer says, guard your heart or keep your heart with all diligence because from it flow the issues of life, the springs of life. This is what I know. I know that you make time for what you love. You make time for what you love. And if you start trying to obey some, some regulations and some guidelines for being a good church member and your heart just isn't inflamed toward the building of the church and the Lord of the church, then no matter whatever these regulations and guidelines are, they're never going to be done well, they're never going to be done excellently, and they're never going to be done faithfully. Why? Because your heart's not with it. So I just want to tell you, church, more than anything, like this week, if there was one thing that I would want you really to do is I would want you to, to begin to try to value the preciousness, the treasure that the church of Jesus Christ is. Second, I want you to ask the question, what abilities and resources do I have that the church can benefit from? What abilities and resources do I have that the church can benefit from? Can I sing? Can I write? Can I counsel? Can I pray? Can I host? 
Can I play music? Can I organize? Can I clean? Can I repair? Can I paint? Can I text? Can I give? Can I build? Can I babysit? Can I attend the nursery? Can I cook? Can I greet? Can I pray? Can I fast? Can I teach? Can I do any of those things? Can I do all of those things? Do I have money? Do I have time? Do I have a home? Do I have food? Do I have tools? Do I have toys? Do I have games? Like you, you literally need to ask yourself the question, what abilities and what resources do I have that I can use for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ? I want to be very clear that I am grateful and excited by how the church at large uses gifts and abilities and resources for the building up the body. But I also want to be very clear, I don't think we're doing a great job at it. I'm concerned about it. Like I, I get to go around and see other churches and, and talk with other pastors and there are a lot of other churches that are in a lot worse shape than we're in in this regard. But there are other churches who are in a lot better shape than we are in this regard. There are more people sacrificing, giving, and rolling up their sleeves with an enthusiasm than what we have at this church, comparatively speaking, statistically speaking. Why is that? Well, I don't know why that is. Why is it that we lack an overall zeal to take the abilities and the gifts and the resources that God has entrusted to us and not think about other things, not think about other pursuits, but think about the church first because the church is the most precious organization that exists for me, for my family, for my life, and for my eternity. So I just want us to ask the question, what resources, what abilities, what gifts do I have that I can contribute to the building up of the church that I might be a blessed church member? Okay, resolve to utilize those gifts and abilities for the service of the church. That would be the third thing. Just kind of shot those bullets for you. So um, resolve. Like be like that first church and have a resolve. Have a spirit-led determination to use your gifts, to use your abilities, to use your resources for the service of the church. I have one more for you. Take methodical steps to be together at different times, in different places, doing different things. And by that, I mean go shopping together, go on vacation together, go on dates together, go evangelizing together, go to the park together, watch the game together, be with each other in each other's homes. Like be together just like they were in Acts because the more you're together, the more the church is edified and strengthened and the more you use your gifts, you use your resources, you use your abilities. When you're together, you can counsel one another. When you're together, you can listen to one another. When you're together, you can love one another. When you're together, you can be a fragrant offering to the Lord Jesus Christ as there is mutual love. When you're together, you can be a gospel witness to the people whether you're at a restaurant or in a park or no matter where you are, you can do the work of the church when you're together. But when you're apart, and when you're separated and when you're an individual you have much much less of an impact for the church of Jesus Christ all right if you don't mind bow your heads um, I want to quote someone that I hardly ever quote I want to quote John Calvin and interestingly I'm not going to quote anything about election or predestination or anything like that listen to what John Calvin said about membership in the church he said if we don't prefer the church to all other objects of our interest we are unworthy of being counted among our members 
If we don't prefer the church to all other members of our interest, we are unworthy of being counted among our members. So this morning, I want to ask you as Phil begins to play, has this text exposed any individualism in your heart? Has it exposed any greed? Has it exposed any focus on self? Has it focused, has it, has it opened up to you any worldliness that you have? I just want to, I want to give you the opportunity right now to confess individualism, greed, selfishness, worldliness. And if you're, if you're feeling the conviction that you just don't value the church, like you think it's a good thing and you're glad it's here, but you don't value it, you don't prize it, you don't cherish the church, I want to give you the opportunity to repent and let the gospel of Jesus Christ enliven you and giving you a fresh enthusiasm for the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ.